Hi, this is Oliver Stone, and I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. Aaron Brockovich is the president of Brockovich Research and Consulting and the founder of the Aaron Brockovich Foundation, a nonprofit created to educate and empower communities in their fight for clean water. And she's the author of the book Superman's Not Coming, Our National Water Crisis and What We the People Can Do About It. Aaron, thank you for the time. Why is stick-to-itiveness a word that you love so much? (laughs) Well, I learned that growing up. As a kid with a learning disability, I was always feeling defeated. And it was my mom that one day said, you know, you got to have your stick to And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? So, of course, she brought Webster's Dictionary and read me the definition. Noun, propensity to follow through in a determined manner. Dogged persistence, born of obligation and stubbornness. And I'm like, okay, see, that I got. I got the determined, I am dogged, stubborn is my middle name. (laughs) And as silly as it sounds, as a youngster, I became the little engine that could. How crazy is that? And I'm 60-year-old today, and I tell you, you've got to have stick-to-itiveness. Life will require it. And while we're not born necessarily with it, you have to develop the habit of persevering, even when you don't want to, and it'd be easier to give up. No question, and not to veer too far off the topic for today, but that's what allows you, because we all fail, that's what allows you to not just deal with failure, but continue forging ahead and oftentimes learning the necessary lessons in the process. You do, and that's the thing, you know, we were talking about this earlier, and I think of it, you know, when we all watch a sporting event, we get knocked around in life, right? It just happens. It's life, and you almost have to expect it, but when you do and you get knocked down, you don't just throw in the ball. No, honestly, that's the dogged determination and persistence and the obligation, even to yourself, oh, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to do it again. And each time you do, you'll find that you're rushing 10 yards and another 10 and another 10 and another 10, and you're getting there. So it's okay if at first you don't succeed. And we've all heard these things before, but it's really, really true. And if you get knocked down and you're shook up, Shake it off. Give yourself that moment. But here's the thing. Get back in it and go at it again. Heck yeah. Aaron, it was a bit surprising to read that Richard Nixon spearheaded a movement that led to the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and the EPA. What did Tricky Dick say in 1970 that put a lot of this into motion over the next half decade? (laughs) You know, I'm so glad you brought this up, just simply because... We think of environmental issues, whether it's right or left, and it's going to be everybody's issues. And I wanted people to know, maybe we have forgotten, that, in fact, it was a Republican Party that implemented some of the greatest environmental laws we have and where we've kind of fallen down on ourselves, possibly. My dad was a Republican. He ran the pipelines for Citigroup. And he was the very one that taught me the value of water and the importance of the environment and that all of us were going to rely upon it for our own survival. And the message came from a father, not a Republican side, but somehow there's become a division with us. You have to be one side or the other to care about the environment, our water, 
our land, our soil, our air, and nothing could be further from the truth. And politics oftentimes erode what it is we should all be working on together. So that's why I brought up Richard Nixon. And here we are divided on politics with the environment and water. And that is the worst possible place we could be. Well, it's such an important point to make in this day and age where everything gets politicized, even things that have no business getting politicized. We just, you know, talking about sports, we root for one side or the other seemingly versus using our heads to really think about something. I think we think we have to do that, and we don't. And part of Superman's not coming is that there's a moment happening for us, whether we were comfortable, complacent, a thought, an idea, some label that you have to be this or that. And the most important thing and where I see people, myself included, and in every community I'm working with, and we share that with you in the book, rise up because we've learned ourselves. It's getting back to hearing yourself, a set of common sense. We move away from that. We question everything. When you actually know what's going on, you just got to own it. And working with your community. And these are things that are really key. And think about, you know, I learned really at a very young age, nobody was going to fix my learning disability. I had to know me and my quirks. And that's okay because we all have them. But how could I best work with that? to achieve ultimately my best self. And we've lost ourselves and we've got this idea that someone's going to rescue us and they're not. I also figured out in my life, guess what? Prince Charming isn't coming. And so I don't know if we grew up thinking we needed all of these certain things in order to have a voice. And we don't. I've seen in my communities, and we share in the book, if you're not a doctor, a lawyer, or a scientist, or this, or that, you couldn't possibly be in politics, you couldn't possibly speak up, or you had to be quiet and go away. No, this is about, and I've learned through my environment, my work in water, as you peel the layers back, it is a discovery of yourself, and finding your voice, and how you take accountability, and rise from there, and not wait for someone else to do it for you or decide for you. And I think there's a very big moment right now where we are in a way waking up and not going to be comfortable or has something been an illusion? Did we buy the shit? I don't know, <laughs> but we have to find ourselves again. And every time I've done that in my life, I move forward and I've, seen in every single community when they do that they move forward while we are at a critical mass right now with the nation's water supply aaron this is not necessarily an example of something surfacing over the last five to ten years as a matter of fact one of the epa's first major undertakings was to examine our nation's water supply what did they report to the public in 1975 you asked me such great questions However the system began may have been all good and well intended. It's not working today. We're looking at the book and we share with you knowledge is power. And oftentimes people don't understand how the process works. And we've had a conversation about, is it by design? Is it inept? Have we moved on from what the policies were? Are there loopholes in the law? Are there loopholes in the policy? And, the EPA has some very well-intended, good-meaning people in there, but the system failed. And 
we didn't get where we are with our water problems yesterday. This has been an erosion of the system for decades. And just today was announced how many more Superfund sites had gone on to the list. Everybody has a different cause. To understand and push through on your cause, you have to know your facts, you have to know your information, where that knowledge comes on, how the EPA works, how the system's set up, where the system's failed, and how we get away from the blame game, because we could blame anybody and everybody over decades, couldn't we? But here's the problem. It's here. We're here. We're inherently a great society. How do we become solution-driven and moving away from a system that is no longer serving us? Because if we don't, we don't move into the future, especially with our water crisis. And the EPA is a system that has been undermined with very good people in it, with very good intentions in its start. It's eroded, and the system has now truly failed. And I think a good example of that is PFOA and PFOS. What are those two things and how are they a great lesson on the EPA trying to set standards while the science continues to evolve on certain things? Well, first of all, science does evolve. Science takes a long time. I think we're in a moment where science is catching up with policies. And you bring up a great point, PFOA, took me forever to learn how to say it, by the way, perfluorooctanoic acid. I'm glad you said that, Aaron, because I was terrified to try and pronounce it. (laughs) I'm still terrified for some of these chemical names. Honestly, I have to recite them to myself over and over and over again for weeks at a time. So you know it as Teflon Hmm. and Scotchgard. All of that is PFOA. This chemical and PFOS, which you will know as firefighting foam, is all part of a family of chemicals that was created. They took about 3,000 different chemicals to create this family. And many years ago, decades ago, a manufacturer notified the EPA that this chemical was a bad actor and to keep an eye on it. So the EPA set a guideline. Now, when you read the book, here again is where knowledge is power, when you understand how a system is working. So the EPA has guidelines. They have maximum contaminant levels. They report in parts per billion, parts per million. We teach you all of that. And one thing I want to share right here is if you think for one moment, we get scared when we talk about chemistry or science too complicated. I can't get involved. Yes, you can. Take one little bite at a time and get that under your belt and then go the next step because this is a place oftentimes where people will back away. So the EPA set a guideline of 400 parts per trillion. Don't know where they came up with that because they knew nothing about how this chemical was going to react in the environment, but they set the guideline. So The guideline goes down to all the municipalities and says you can run this chemical through your system up to 400 parts per trillion. And off we go, right? Decades pass. Well, the EPA had commissioned a study, and it cost millions and millions of dollars to commission just one study. And that study takes time 
five years, eight years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, and guess what happened? Four years ago, they get the phone call, we've got a problem. This chemical that's in the environment is almost impossible to remove from the environment, is in our water, in our municipalities, and oh, it causes all types of disease and cancer. What were we possibly thinking? And to make matters worse, we had an EPA director at the time, Scott Pruitt, who had the study. We had to fight to get that study revealed. Now we have a huge national water crisis in most municipalities. It's in the aquifer. It's impossible to get out of the environment. It damages the ecosystem, the environment, public health and welfare. And all of it was concealed. This is an ass-backwards system. And if you understand, when you do, you'll rise. You'll realize, well, heck, I've been thinking someone here all along had my back, and they did it. There is a huge message here for our agencies and for corporations. We need to start investing in our infrastructure, our safety, and our people first. And this idea that you put that last so you can protect your chemical and money up front isn't working out. And it's not going to carry us into the future. You point out that some of the biggest polluters of this country's water supply are also guilty of knowing the harm of what they're dumping into our water, much like the tobacco companies knew the fatal effects of smoking long before admitting it to the public. You also provide some discouraging examples of laws that actually protect polluters. How does the Energy Policy Act of 2005 fit in here? I'm getting ready to have a bigger conversation about that. They do fit into it. So we have antiquated laws and antiquated policies that were written decades ago. Were they by design? Were they inept? Was it well-meaning and it got hijacked? It could be all four, but that is what's happened. These energy policies, these corporations... How a system was set up wasn't designed in our best interest, but rather for the sake of greed and money first. And that wake-up call, that shift, we're in it right now. I've seen that we've been in it, but we haven't seen the big picture as America. And I think that moment is here. So there's roles for everyone to play. I just think if we would stop with the deception, the cover-up, the denial, and go, yeah, that is a law. It doesn't work today. How we reform it. We saw this happen in Flint, by the way, and most people are unaware of a lead and copper rule, which was written back in the day, that states you only have to test for lead once every four years, and you can average your samples. That's a good way to miss a data point, a really good way. But that was a law that we've now realized doesn't serve us. And Congressman Dan Kildee did a hell of a job at getting that law reformed. Here's the thing. These laws can be reformed. They can be changed. Policies can be changed. And until there's a movement from the people that really says, hey, I'm not going to put up with this anymore, we don't always see that traction. 
And here we are in a moment where people are waking up. They are rising up. I see it community after community. They want to learn about a chemical or they want to learn about a policy. We're seeing more badass moms on the rise. We're seeing more moms running for city council. They're owning it. And we have to change the system. But that won't happen if we the people don't participate and make it our business to look at what went wrong and how we move forward. This is why I am so excited and why we wrote Superman's Not Coming. I've been a foot soldier on the ground, and I know what the people are going through. You have to have the right tools to know how to fight. And that's what this book is giving people. And part of the way you're helping to empower people is by helping to put together a website called communityhealthbook.com. What is Community Health Book? It started out as a place for people to report. So people come to me all the time looking for permission. You know, am I on the right track? Can you get involved? And what they really need is support. But what I started doing was noticing an email, and I recognized, didn't somebody get a hold of me from that community recently? And so I'd start running a query because I'll recognize patterns usually pretty quickly. And I'd realize, oh my gosh, I have 10 people within three block radius in the same town talking about, they know they have a pollution issue and the children are sick. So I started to put it on a map. We want to believe that what happened in Hinkley or what happened in Flint could be a one-off. We are busy in our lives, and we don't always see the bigger picture. And the map gave me that moment. And so because of that map and the testimony of Trevor Schaefer, a young boy from Idaho, he and a group of his friends had brain cancer. He survived. His friends did, and he vowed that he would do something about it. We both were doing mapping, and we had a conversation that there was no national registry database. We think there is, but that information can't be shared for us to recognize a pattern. So why would one community and then another and then another and one in 10 different states all be experiencing the same thing? What would be a common denominator? And you could find that it is water. You could find that it is a same factory that has got pollution and they have one in each one of these towns we missed the pattern without self-reporting and while we have cancer registries that information can't be shared because of hipaa so they created trevor's law so we now have a law in place where we're supposed to be creating as a government a national reporting registry database and this gives people a chance to self-report where we can see you and see on the map, oh, my gosh, we have this similar problem in 10 different states. And if I can't see where you are, we can't activate a community. We can't get into the community and give you the tools so you can rise up and start making change at a microscopic place in your own backyard. So we started Community Health Book. And that's what it's there for. And it gives people a place to go to and report, I'm over here. I've got this groundwater contamination. I'm curious. I've had five people come to me. Do you know anything about it? And oftentimes when someone sees that spot on a map, they'll go, oh, my gosh, 
I'm from there. Oh, my gosh, I have that problem. Then they can report back to you. And all of a sudden, we start seeing numbers grow of what you thought was four people in a community. People migrated away. They never had a place to report back to that you have a significant amount of people that something could be going on that says to you, this needs to be looked at. And that's Community Health Book. It is a self-reporting environmental map. You just mentioned Trevor's story, Aaron. You tell several inspiring stories in this book. My favorite maybe involves the Insmingers. Who are Jeremy and Janie Insminger, uh, and why is their story so important to this book? Oh, my gosh. So this is about Camp Lejeune. And our DOD is one of our biggest polluters, Department of Defense. They use so many chemicals and so many chemicals on equipment. They use firefighting foam to practice. All of these bases have these contamination. And Camp Lejeune in North Carolina was very polluted with PCE, trichloroethylene. It's a solvent. And the well that serviced the homes for the soldiers and their families was contaminated with this chemical, and nothing was said to them. Jerry Insminger was one of the most incredible men I think I have ever met. And he lost his daughter, Janie, and he made a vow that he would fight for Camp Lejeune, for the soldiers, for their families, for the countless people who were sick and died of cancer. He's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. He is the documentary, The Proud, The Few, The Forgotten. We talk about it in the book because it is so widespread. And I'm a military mom. And the idea that our soldiers return home and are poisoned on our own soil and their families are harmed in their absence is beyond anything that I think I could possibly comprehend. We have to have this conversation We have to push for cleanup for our military men, women, their families who put their life on the line for us and to come home and be poisoned. And the idea that even our own agency is looking at up to potentially a million people that have been to that base could, in fact, come down with the disease. And we don't talk about it. Again, these cover-ups, the shell game, the deception, it has got to stop. And Jerry Insminger has been in a fight for his daughter, Janie, and for all of the returning soldiers and family, and continues to fight today. We talk about these heroes in the book that rose up. They didn't wait for some policy or some agency to enact. They began to mobilize. They began to inform people, and they have begun the process of we the people rising up fighting back for their own clean water, their own health, and for the truth about what has happened to their health or their child. Aaron, you talk a lot about solutions in this book. Is bottled water part of the solution? Bottled water is a bit of a placebo. Many of our bottled waters could just be tap water that's run through a reverse osmosis that we don't happen to have. It's created some further problems, as we all know, with plastics, We've got the plastic islands, how the bits of those plastics have gotten into the human body, into our sewer systems, have impacted our health. 
So it's a placebo. It's for convenience. And I travel a lot. And there's times that absolutely you need bottled water. There's been times I've been in communities where I'm like, I wouldn't drink that water. I'll just brush my teeth in beer and drink a beer <laughs> until I can find a clean source. And that's unfortunately happening in the U.S. more and more. It's not the solution. We could do one thing that would help with our water system, and that's remove ammonia. A perfect example, Safe Drinking Water Act states that when you cannot control your trihalomethanes, you have to put on the appropriate filtration. But we don't do that. We want to go the cheap route. So instead of following a regulation that will protect the water, we now add ammonia. Well, adding the ammonia is adding another chemical that changes the composition of the water that now creates another problem, and it becomes corrosive. It causes the lead pipes in our infrastructure that needs to be dealt with to leach out iron, manganese, and lead directly to your tap. It renders chlorination less effective, so we're seeing more legionnaire outbreaks. And if we could just acknowledge we have that problem, and at one thing, no more ammonia in the water, we'd have less legionnaire outbreaks, we wouldn't have lead problems, and we would deal with our infrastructure. So we've got to stop doing things cheap and thinking we're going to save a buck on the upfront when down the end of the line and you've poisoned everybody and here come the lawsuits and you're going to be out billions of dollars and now we've got a damaged environment and a sick public health and welfare sector. Let's do this a different way. In the book, we talk about the ladies of Hannibal. They were using ammonia. They made it their job to learn about it. They ran for city council. They won. They educated the community about what was happening. They put a referendum out. Do you want ammonia in the system? Yes or no? Everyone voted no. So it is about us rising up, but we won't do that until we see and understand what's happened. We as the people need to own it again and get out there and start fighting again, but have the tools on how to effectively do that because we can change. But if we keep the illusion going that someone's magically going to fix this, I don't know that that change will occur. But I do believe that there is a moment as we wake up and we get busy working together to divert a scenario before we have a disaster. And we share that with you towards the end of the book with Johannesburg, South Africa. It was national news. They were going to run out of water, not a drop to be found. And what happened was the people did what was necessary, how they rationed. The government, the agencies, they listened. They worked together. They heard and saw what was coming. They prepared for it. And because of that action, they were able to divert having no water. And that is a scenario that could happen to any one of us. We have to act. Aaron, after spending a half hour with you, I can understand why so many people turn to you as a sort of leader of this movement and why so many people are willing to try and run through a brick wall for you in this fight. Thank you very much for the time today. You ask some of the greatest questions. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for listening today. 
You can check out all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>